Lord, we praise you that you are holy in your beauty, in your glory, in your majesty, in your wisdom, in your righteousness. And Lord, you are holy in your truth. Lord, the psalmist says, open my eyes to the wondrous things in your law. He says, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. And he says, great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. And so, Lord, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things in your word, that you would give us the passion and energy and ability to run in the path of your commands as you have freed our hearts. And Lord, that you would give us your great peace so that we would not stumble, that you would give us love and affection for your love. Do that in the hearts of these young ones and do that in the hearts of those who remain. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As one of the uh, pastors of faith, I'd like to welcome you to our message series in the epistle or the letter of Paul to Timothy, uh, his apostolic delegate who he sent to Ephesus to address a crisis, a spiritual crisis there. Uh, Paul had planted uh, the church of Ephesus years before this. He actually spent three years in Ephesus, and he mentioned to the Ephesian elders in a a uh, last engagement with them in Acts chapter 20 about savage wolves that would come. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Well, I think it can be said that the savage wolves had come or had emerged in the church of Ephesus. And so Paul sends his young lieutenant, his young, timid, frail Timothy into the eye of this spiritual storm center to address and correct the situation in order to protect the church and to promote the gospel work there. And the reoccurring charge or theme that describes this gospel work is the word fight. Fight the good fight. Wage the good war. It's not just a fight. It is the good fight. It is the most true. It's the most worthy. It's the most eternally rewarded and precious fight we could ever give ourselves to. If you're feeling beat up this morning, if you're feeling beat up not just in life, but in your attempts to give yourselves to your faith and service in this world, if you feel that you are in the fight of your life, well, welcome to the warfare of the kingdom. <laughs> you are in the good war. But you need to know that the victory has already been accomplished in Christ. And the victor who delights to work with you and through you and in you to carry on his good news. And in this good fight, Timothy 
was called to, and Paul reveals for us the spiritual truths, the character, and the quality, and the practices, not only what makes a healthy church, but also what makes healthy leaders. And last week in the opening verses, we saw that God had revealed an essential discipleship relationship of his gospel mission to the world. Well, today, we'll see how God reveals an essential calling our gospel calling in his mission to the world. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting with verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Doctrine divides. Love unites. That's a popular and catchy saying that many people intuitively nod their heads to an affirmation and often refer to all the denominations and the divisions within Christianity over differences and theological nuances. Doctrine merely means teaching. And one problem with that statement is that it makes no distinction between sound doctrine or healthy teaching and unsound or false and unhealthy teaching. Paul, in this passage, makes clear that there is such a thing as sound or healthy doctrine. I had to learn this fast in my first year as a young church planter, having been propelled from the safe discourses 
of seminary study into church planning. We were needing to find a place for our afternoon worship services. In the early days, we actually moved eight times in two years for where we were going to worship. And so I was on the hunt for places uh, that we could rent for worship, and we were meeting on Sunday afternoons at 4 o'clock, and so I found a particular church that it was vacant during that period of time. I thought maybe they'd be interested in, in some additional income. I went and called uh, the pastor. I told him who I was and, and uh, that we are this little body looking for a space. And I was part of what was called the Presbyterian Church in America. And when I said that, <clears throat> I noticed that there was a pause. And then I... I said, are you familiar with us? And the first statement was, oh, yes. I know all about your dissentious group. And I will tell you that I want nothing to do with you. And I didn't really know what the word dissentious meant. I knew it was something <laughs> bad. And I had to kind of look it up later. But... <clears throat> I, all of a sudden, all of my seminary courses on the uh, parts and principles about theological liberalism and all the things I memorized that I thought were kind of like outdated, all became front and center. And I, I just responded, I said, well, don't you think that, you know, really this is about uh, perspective on the nature and the authority of the Word of God? He says, I'm not going to talk to you about that. All I can tell you is, I don't want anything to do with you or your kind. I'll tell the session. And I said, wow. Well, welcome to the war. <laughs> and I learned that you could lead or belong to such a church and not believe that the Bible is the word of God. Not believe that Jesus is the divine son of God or the only savior. Not believe that Jesus rose bodily from the grave, and other historic beliefs that have been foundational to the Christian faith throughout the centuries, and of which Paul would say are part of the essence of sound or healthy doctrine. That church, by the way, no longer exists, but the Apostle Paul would not be surprised that in our day, as in his own day, that there will be people and leaders who wander away from these things. And so in these opening verses of this letter to Timothy, God, through Paul, writing, reveals the essentials of our gospel calling in his mission to the world. And the essentials of Timothy's calling and, and the calling of every follower of Christ is the calling to guard the truth, to apply the gospel, and to experience the grace. He says... I urge you, when I, I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrines. And Paul is urging Timothy, the primary reason that he sent him to Ephesus was to urge and tell and deal with these false teachers. And actually, the word uh, false teaching, heterodidaskaleo, which means uh, 
different. It means different doctrines or different teachings. And Paul complained to the Galatians that they had deserted the grace of Christ for a different gospel, something that was different from what the apostles had originally given to the Corinthians. They were often led astray to a different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. And so Paul is telling Timothy to go into the church of Ephesus and address this. But in the process of this, we find that Paul acknowledges to Timothy that there is a norm of doctrine from which false teachers had deviated. Uh, there are different expressions of this that we find in Paul's writings. He talks about the Spirit clearly says that in the latter time, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits. Uh, he's, he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Uh, some have professed and in so, so doing have departed, departed from the faith. And there's a, uh, there is a definite article between, before faith, before truth. And so Paul is acknowledging, and what we find here is that there is a definite body of doctrine that existed, an agreed standard by which teaching could be tested and judged. And it was this that was given to the churches, uh, and this was given by the apostles. And so Paul charges Timothy to deal with this. Now, we don't know exactly what these particular teachings were, these different doctrines were that were being pro propounded. Uh, some, uh, Paul mentions it's dealing with myths or legends and fables or endless genealogies. And, and we don't really totally know what all these particulars were, but we do know that Paul says uh, we know their effect. They, we know what they do. They produce useless speculations or vain discussions. They promote controversy versus the work of God. And so Paul makes clear that the goal of his command to Timothy and the end of all gospel instruction is this, is love. The aim of our charge, the aim of our instruction to you, Timothy, is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. And so Paul is telling that this is the fruit of of our instruction to you. It's, it's love. It's to produce love to God and love for others, and it issues from a pure heart rather, one that's, rather than one that's filled with sinful desires, a good conscience rather than one that's laden with guilt, and a sincere faith rather than pretense and hypocrisy. And so he's dealing with the motives and the heart issues here of the minister of God and that Timothy was to be. And so here, uh, John Stott actually talks about two tests, two tests, practical tests to apply to all teaching. And the first is the test of faith. Does it come from God? Is it in, in agreement with the apostolic teachings or doctrines? Or is it human imaginations and the man's words? Does it make much of God's word or much of man's words? The second test is the test of love. Does it promote unity in the body of Christ? Truth does divide, but is it irresponsibly divisive? And so faith 
and love are the test upon which we can determine what is sound or healthy doctrine. Now, you need to recognize that not all teachings from the Scripture are equally clear and plain and essential for salvation. The, our confession, uh, the Westminster Confession, says not all things in Scripture are equally plain in themselves or equally clear at all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly stated and explained in one place or another in Scripture that not only the educated but also the uneducated may gain a sufficient understanding of them by a proper use of the ordinary means. Now, there's a lot in there, but it means that the clear things, the important things that God wants us to know are very clear in Scripture. Can you say purposcuity? <laughs> That's a big theological term. It just basically means clarity. It means clear that the core key things, the main things for salvation in the scriptures, the important things are clear. They're repeated in the scriptures. And so not every teaching that you hear is of that same import. Um, and you know, Paul actually gives a, a, a version of what is clear. He says, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in the body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed in the world, was taken up in the glory. He's talking about Jesus, that he was incarnate, that he was acknowledged uh, in his, his baptism as the Son of God. He was seen by angels. He was preached in the nations, and he was taken up in the glory. So these are kind of core, this was like a core theological statement. This is, these are truths that we could see repeated in different ways and affirmed in Scripture. So there are core key things that are essential for salvation, but then there are other things that are not. Not all things are equal weight. For instance, the nature of baptism, the mode of baptism, uh, whether you're to be immersed or sprinkled or poured, uh, whether uh, infant baptism or believer adult baptism is uh, the, the main thing. These are things that have been debated by sincere people who believe the scriptures for ages. The nature of the end times. Are you post-mill, pre-mill, ah-mill? You could say, I'm pan-mill. I believe it's all going to work out in the end. Uh, there are many different things in the scriptures that sincere believers can have legitimate differences on, and we can have uh, those, those discussions, and we can, we can enter in. But what we are united on, those very clear things in scripture, and we need to be a people that are united across these denominational divides on the core teachings of the, of the sound teaching of the scripture. Our good example of sound teaching or healthy doctrine that makes much of God's word and little of man's thinking is actually a, a sermon that Martin Luther King had preached. And by the way, Martin Luther King uh, was immersed in the scriptures, and you can see uh, that he raises the scriptures in so many of his messages. But he gave a message in 1957, Loving Your Enemies, from Matthew 5. And he talks, uh, and it's, he says here, that uh, this is from the Sermon on the Mount. He says, it's significant that he does not say, like your enemy. 
Like is a sentimental something, an affectionate something. There are a lot of people that I find it difficult to like. I don't like what I, they do to me. I don't like what they say about me and other people. I don't like their attitudes. I don't like some of the things they're doing. I don't like them. But Jesus says, love them. And love is greater than like. Love is understanding, redemptive, goodwill for all men, so that you love everybody because God loves them. You refuse to do anything that will defeat an individual because you have agape in your soul. And so that is a good, clear presentation that makes much of God's word and that is revealed in the fruit of love. And, uh, and so that is... Uh, the way we should uh, approach how do we discern what is sound teaching, sound doctrines that are clear and that promote love. But then we find this transition. Paul raises matters of the law in the false teachings of, that he says there are certain persons desiring to be teachers of the law with, who are without understanding either what they're saying or the things which make they make confident assertions. So Paul moves the discussion about what the right use of the law and how the gospel is applied. And he says in verse 8, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, the disobedient, for the ungodly. And he goes on and he makes a list of all of these particulars of of what the law was aimed for, these sinners that the law was aimed for. And Paul, Paul here speaks about the nature and the purpose of the law. Uh, there is a right use of the law, Paul expresses here, and there's a wrong use of the law or God's word that he mentions here. And, and it's been suggested, and I believe it is valid, that Paul is framing the right use of the law in, in parallel to the Ten Commandments. Uh, this slide, which is going to be a little bit hard for you to, to fully see, but, but uh, the, 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 the language of the three phrases at the beginning, that the law was made for the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, and the holy, unholy and profane, is, is believed that it's really focusing on the first part of the Ten Commandments, which are our relationship with God. You know, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, you shall not make any graven image or idols. You shall not take the Lord's God's name in vain. You shall honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. But then he goes on, and the, the fifth commandment, uh, honor your father and mother, he mentions those who strike their fathers and mothers. Uh, then six, you shall not murder. And he says, for murderers. Uh, you shall not commit adultery. And he deals with sexual immorality. And he's not dealing with sexual orientation here. He's talking the practice of things that are sexually uh, immoral. He talks about you shall not steal. And he deals with enslavers or man-stealers, which, which are addressed. And then he says, and you shall not give false testimony, which he talks about liars and perjurers. So the law has particular focuses and purposes. There's a right use of the law, and there's a wrong use of the law. And Paul is saying the law was made for sinners. 
The law was given for sinners and rebels. Uh, Martin Luther, in his commentary to the Galatians in Galatians 3, talks about a twofold purpose of the law. He says, uh, first, the first pur- purpose is to restrain the wicked. The devil gets people in all kinds of scrapes. Therefore, God instituted governments and parents, <laughs> laws, restrictions, and civil ordinances. At least they help to tie the devil's hands so that he does not rage up and down the earth. The civil restraint by the law is intended by God for the preservation of all things, particularly for the good of the gospel, that it should not be hindered too much by the tumult of the wicked. So one purpose, one right purpose of the law is to restrain evil. The second purpose of the law is spiritual and divine. And Paul describes this uh, because of transgressions. And uh, the law is to reveal... Uh, a person's sin and blindness to bring them to the recognition they need a savior. He says, the law is the hammer of death, the thunder of hell, the lightning of God's wrath to bring down the proud and the shameless hypocrites. As long as a person thinks he is right, he is going to be incomprehensibly proud and presumptuous. This monster of self-righteousness, this stiff-necked beast needs a big axe. And that is what the law is, a big axe. Accordingly, the proper use and function of the law is to threaten until the conscience is scared stiff. You know, I like how Martin Luther just brings it on. He just, like, lays it out. This is what the law is calling us to do, is to reveal our sin, is to drive us to our need for a Savior. In this sense, the law was to be a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But then he says, that, and he, he also brings in, the, but the business of the gospel, on the other hand, is to quicken, to comfort, to raise the fallen. The gospel carries the news that God, for Christ's sake, is merciful to the most unworthy sinners if they will only believe that Christ, by his death, has delivered them from sin and everlasting death unto grace, forgiveness, and everlasting life. And so, He is showing forth the nature of the law and that the law and the gospel go together. Uh, There was a third part or third purpose for the law that uh, John Calvin uh, also encouraged, and that is that is to be used as to determine or to show forth the conduct of believers. That the law is the best instrument both to teach us the Lord's will and to exhort us to do it. And so he says that we uh, are free in Christ, that we can run after his commands as Psalm 119 talks about. And so these are the three right functions of the law. And at the end of this statement, Paul says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. He's talking, it's interesting, is it not, that he is talking about rebels and sinners, and he goes through this big list of their behavioral sins. And then he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. You would have thought whatever else is contrary to right morality. But what Paul associates as sound doctrine connects with our practice of holy living. Sound doctrine and the fruit of sound doctrine is very connected and evident. And even in that passage that we saw, the mystery of godliness is great. And then he talks about the core doctrines or the core teachings about the nature of Jesus. 
And so there is no antithesis between the law and the gospel and the moral standards which they teach. The antithesis is the way of salvation. The law condemns and the gospel justifies. Uh, there was an uh, interesting study done by George Barna, uh, who revealed in a survey a strong contrast in actual behavior between so-called evangelicals and a smaller segment of evangelicals who claim to have a biblical worldview. He said the larger segment of evangelicals who claim to have made a personal commitment to Christ uh, and uh, who agree with things like Jesus lived a sinful, sinless life, eternal salvation is only through grace, not works. Christians have a personal responsibility to evangelize. Satan exists. These people, he said, they're about 7 or 8% of the U.S. population, but he said this about these particular professed Christians, evangelicals, he said they do not live substantially different than the world in terms of their charitable giving, sexual practice, or racial attitudes. There's really not any difference is what he says here. But he says, however, they did a survey, he says, however, those who hold a biblical worldview, who hold that the Bible is the moral standard, and that absolute moral truths exist and are conveyed through the Bible, who believe that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator who still rules the universe, that salvation cannot be earned by their deeds, and that the Bible is totally accurate in all that it teaches. He said this group, which is substantially smaller than this broad evangelical group, he said these are nine times more likely than all the others to avoid adult-only material on the Internet, they're four times more likely than other Christians to boycott objectionable com companies and products, twice as likely to volunteer time to needy people. And Ron Sider wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, and he says 49% of all Christians with a biblical worldview have volunteered more than an hour in the previous week to an organization serving the poor, whereas only 29% of, quote, evangelical or Christians without a biblical worldview have. And, uh, and what the conclusion here is, is that what you believe, doctrine, true teaching, matters. It impacts your life. It impacts what you do. It's very connected. And Barna says, Barna's finds on the different behavior of Christians with a biblical worldview underlie the importance of theology. Biblical orthodoxy matters. And now I will give a plug for how we can encourage that. We, we as, if we're serious about growing in sound doctrine or the teachings, we need to be serious about studying the Bible, about exposing ourselves to the scriptures. And so we have soul food that's going to start after this service. And this is a great way for us to all grow in grace and the knowledge of God. Uh, our community groups meet, and uh, we encourage them to really focus on the applications and the study of the scriptures. Your personal walk with Christ and how you engage the scriptures daily are so important for your for your growth in grace. And so these are things that we encourage you. But finally, it's the experience of grace. You know, Paul can't talk about sound doctrine without falling into worship. Paul does not raise other people's sins without confessing his own. 
I think it would have been inappropriate for me to end the sermon just talking about the other people's sins. But we can see that Paul moves and he talks about this glorious gospel. And then he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to service, though I was formerly a blasphemer, persecuted, insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorant and in belief and unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and the love there in Christ Jesus. Paul is very, he's basically saying the law was made for the lawless, the rebels, and for all of these who were God-haters. And he says, and I was the foremost one. He's saying, I was the chief of sinners. And he refers to, himself to that. And, and there might be some questions here that when he says, the Lord judged me faithful, he is not talking about his faithfulness as a, uh, as a person that was worthy of, of Christ's love, but that he was given strength to fulfill uh, his calling and his service as an apostle. But Paul focuses so much here about his previous way of life. And uh, how he was a blasphemer, a violent man, uh, an arrogant, an insolent man who humiliated and insulted other people. Uh, we talked, or we heard the scripture from Acts 9 about his conversion, how he was breathing out murderous threats, uh, and how much evil he had done against God's people, and uh, that he was creating havoc. Uh, if you can imagine, uh, I would say you could imagine Paul being a jihadist, a jihadist who was, you know, beheading or killing Christians. This is the type of person that he was. He was intent on killing and persecuting God's people. And Paul recognizes that in the midst of this, as an unworthy sinner, that the Amazing grace of God came upon them. He was shown mercy. And he says, The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ. He was, he was resisting Christ. He was, he was fighting Christ, but Christ had to stop him in his tracks. You know, our hearts are desperately wicked. And uh, the scriptures tell us that we are dead in our trespass and sin until the grace of God appears to us. And Paul is a great example of a person uh, who was in that state. But he says, but the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. The grace overflowed like a river. It burst its banks. It carries everything before it, sweeping irresistibly on. We, we, are, we have been seeing a lot of overflowing water. <laughs> And storms, uh, the Hurricane Harvey now followed by Hurricane Irma, and there's a hurricane after Irma, and it was like we're seeing wave after wave of these hurricanes. Well, Paul is saying that the hurricane that God is bringing, the water that's overflowing the banks, are not for destructive purposes, but are His amazing grace, His hurricanes of grace. Uh, they're overflowing the banks. Uh, the storm surge of grace. And, 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 and Paul is just saying, I was just overwhelmed by the grace of God. And my life is different. And, you know, he mentions 
that initially that he was called the least of the apostles, and now uh, he considers himself the chief or the foremost, the greatest and the worst of sinners. And he is not like that he investigated all the world to, to compare himself with others. But the truth is that when we are convicted by the Spirit, uh, an immediate result is that we give up all comparisons. Paul, has been said, was so vividly aware of his own sins that he could not conceive that anybody else could be worse. He could say, I am the worst sinner I know. That's what the grace of God can do. And it also tells us that no one is too far from God. You know, a lot of times we pray for our children and we pray for uh, people to know Christ and they're very far from God. And we think that they're just too big of a sinner. And we forget that God's hands are not too weak or his arms too short. That God does the impossible thing. And so don't give up. I remember in high school, uh, we would meet on Tuesday mornings to pray for the unbelievers. And we actually targeted those that we would assume would be the most uh, impossible to come to Christ. And my sister-in-law was in that prayer group. And while we prayed for these, these people, one was the, 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 the top honor student in the school was a Baha'i believer, which is basically believing all faiths are the same. But she said that years later, this man gave himself to Christ, and, and this other woman gave herself to Christ. Uh, yesterday, Jeek was telling me that his parents prayed for his, his children, his, their sons, but he died before they came to Christ. But his older brother and other brothers over time came to Christ. One came to Christ 20 years later after his father died, when he was 65. Nobody is too far from God. Continue to pray, knowing that God will come after his people. Paul has told us what true doctrine is here, by the way. He says this is a trustworthy saying that demands true respect, that should be believed, that has full, deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so he gives us really the theology of the cross and of the theology of Christ, that he came to save sinners, that Jesus became incarnate, the Son of God, came, and he came for the purpose to save sinners, that the gospel is universal for all, is to be given to all people, and that, that he came to to save sinners in that he came to save individual sinners like Paul and like you and me. He erupts into doxology and worship. And he says, and J.I. Packer says about this, as often as I tell my students, theology is for doxology and devotion. That is the praise of God and the practice of godliness. It should therefore be presented in a way that brings awareness of the divine presence. Theology is at its healthiest when it's is singing to its glory. I'm going to conclude with a story from Rebecca Pippert, who uh, was a woman of great, with great evangelism gifts, and she wrote this thing called The Heart of Missions, and she says that uh, one of the implications of the cross is that it's very democratic. Everybody is in trouble. 
We all share that. There isn't anybody who's better off than someone else. We all desperately need God. Consequently, there's no room for superiority, and there is no room for inferiority. And uh, she says, what does that have in the context of, of, of our witness? And she says, it means that we can't look at someone in the world and say, oh, I could never relate to them. They're not godly. They're sinners, as if the experience of sin is something foreign to us. And she mentions this story about when she was with her husband on a, a foreign assignment, and uh, she became very close to a couple who were political reporters, a woman's by name of Helen. And uh, by even the most secular standards, uh, she was somewhat shocking. She said she was jazzy and wore very seductive clothes. I used to tease her that I couldn't imagine she had to pay money for so little material. She smoked these slim cigars and always made a statement whenever she came into the room. I got to know her and found that she was bright and sensitive and tortured. Knowing that I knew she was married and had two children, she told me she was having an affair with a man who was also married and had some children. And I loved her. And I shared my life with her, and I kept encouraging her to read the Bible. I remember one day she came to my house and said, Becky, I have a specific question about the Gospel of Mark. And I said, I knew it. I've been praying for you and loving you and always telling you that you need to read the Scriptures. It's because I've been doing that. And she says, no. Actually, I was with my lover last week. He is Jewish. And very unexpectedly, he turned to me and said, what do you think of Jesus? And Helen said, pardon me? He explained, well, I'm a Jew. I know something of the Old Testament. I just decided I should know something of the New Testament. And I am so stuck by Jesus, there is something very beautiful about who he is. So I thought you would tell me. And so uh, Helen said, well, I'm very sorry. I take all my religious questions to Becky. So she had a list of all of her questions and the parting word from her lover was, next week we will get together, among other things, I would like to study the Gospel of Mark. And so that was what Rebecca said was the most unusual setting for a Bible study. And so I said, look, Helen, if you're really going to do a Bible study with him and you've never read the Bible, let's study together. And she said, okay. So we began to read the Bible. The first time we were together, she got very nervous and uptight, and I said, what's the matter? Well, excuse me, but could I ask you a personal question? I said, yes. She said, do you think the Bible would mind if I smoke a cigar? I said, I think it can handle that. Yeah. So she lit up her cigar and we're into the passage. She says, excuse me, but can I ask you another question? She said, sure. And she said, I do. Do you think that the Bible would mind if I had a glass of wine? And she said, you could always ask it. I don't know. And from that point on, we met weekly to read the scriptures. She with a glass of wine and a cigar in her hand. And we read about Jesus. It was amazing to see her responses. And I remember one study in particular about when Jesus was with the prostitute at Simon's banquet. Helen looked at me and said, Becky, all of my life I have thought that I was worth a piece of dirt. And I was sure that if there were a God, and I don't think there is, that he would concur with my analysis. Nobody needs to tell me I'm lost. 
I know I'm lost. I know I'm groping in the dark. I thought that if there is a God, he despises my blindness and my lostness. But what I can't get over is that if you're lost, Jesus loves you more than ever. And if you're lost and you know you're lost, you're probably close to the kingdom of God. Can you imagine that? Me, close to the kingdom of God? And Becky said, oh, yes, I can. And she said, Becky, I can't get over Jesus. And Rebecca Pippard put her Bible down and began to cry and said, You know, I've been a Christian for 20 years, and I can't get over Jesus either. I don't know what's going to happen to you. I hope that with all my heart that you become a Christian and that you find the wholeness that God wants. But you'll never be the same. And uh, Helen, this woman, broke off the relationship with the man that she was in an affair with. Uh, And Rebecca said she is trying to make her marriage work. She and her husband were assigned overseas, and one day she called me. She said, I haven't become a Christian yet, but I'm reading the Bible, and I'm reading the Bible to my children. I found a minister and his wife. I don't know, Becky. They have an aroma that reminds me of you. But she said, frankly, I find the church a little uptight. You know, the glorious gospel is a gospel full of truth and mercy and grace. And he wants to, and this Lord wants to preach through you, speak through you, reach God's lost people through you. Let's be a people faithful to the sound doctrine, the glorious doctrine of our God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this this scripture that Paul gives us that reminds us that there's no one too far from you that's too sinful for your gospel, your good news to reach. God, help us to be a people that are sound in our theology, sound in our doctrine, that we might display the glory of you in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.